Faith Saley is the author of Approval Junkie. It started as a memoir, and then she turned it into a one-woman show of the same name off-Broadway. And that title, Approval Junkie, really stuck with me. Because when I talk to people who have struggled with depression and anxiety, people who had neglectful or traumatic childhoods, or just people who are super achievement-oriented, I often hear about the need for outside approval. External validation, if we want to add more syllables to it. Now, maybe one of the reasons I hear a lot about it is that I'm around performers a lot. I interview them on the show, I'm friends with performers in my own life, I've been in a zillion plays and shows and bands myself. I mean, I'm doing it right now. I'm performing on this podcast for you right now. Hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. I often wonder if I or anyone in that kind of work is doing it because they're good at it and it's meaningful, or if they're looking for applause to provide the validation they can't generate for themselves. I mean, what is Carrot Top's motivation? What is Charo really after? Faith Saley is a regular contributor to CBS News Sunday Morning and a regular panelist on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. She's got a bunch of acting credits on her IMDb, hosted on PBS and Sundance Channel, On the mental health front, Faith has dealt with anorexia and depression, has struggles, just like a lot of us. But I kept coming back to that phrase, approval junkie. Faith Saley, welcome to Depression Mode. Thank you, John Moe. I'm very excited to be here and have been walking around for days trying to think of what (laughs) I have to say about mental health. Ah, uh, well, well, we'll figure that out in, in due time. For a while now, through a book and a stage show out of New York, a stage show off-Broadway in New York, and now an Audible original, you've been flying under this banner of approval junkie. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you have a brief explanation of what an approval junkie is. Well... It's not a bad thing. My book, which is a series of essays that I guess one could call a memoir, I published it in, well, it was published in in 2016. And so it almost feels like a period piece because my life is rather different now as my kids have gotten older and my relationship with approval has evolved even since I've written it. But my premise then and now is that Seeking approval is so essentially human. I mean, I'm a parent, you're a parent. I would no sooner deny my kids signs of approbation for who they are and what they do than I would deny them broccoli. And their desire to be witnessed, you know, even the smallest things, because my kids are still pretty little. They're eight and my son's going to be 10 tomorrow. Their, their desire to be witnessed doing the smallest things is not something I want them to think they have to unlearn. And when I started wanting to write a book and sharing stories of my life and looking at any kind of theme that I could weave through them, I saw that, you know, some of the most meaningful, embarrassing, wonderful, soul-stretching things I've ever done have been in the name of wanting to be seen and heard and loved. And 
I wanted to suggest to others that being honest about seeking approval is, that's not a sin. It's not something you need to fix. It is something to investigate to see from whom you want approval and why and when. Ah, okay. Yeah, because we're always told, you know, be uh, self-affirming. Here here are affirmations, you know, assert your own value. Yeah. But yet we do kind of frown on the, hey, everybody, look at me kind of approach. And you're right, kids kids are all about, you know, look at me on the on the playground. Look at me I look at what I can do on this on this swing set. With my kids, it's look at this comedy bit I figured out. Oh amazing. Yeah. And so what do you mean by the the why? It seems like the why is the important part of that equation. Oh, interesting you you were focusing on the why cuz I also think from whom is so important. From um, whom? Well, they're kind of linked, we'll, aren't they? Yeah, we'll we'll get to to the w all the wh words that matter. Um <laughs> the why? Why why do I want approval for this thing? I think that comes from figuring out what our purpose is. I'm, I'm really, it's funny. I've, I've thought about this topic so much and written about it. And like you said, done an off-Broadway show. And I don't think I've ever been asked that question. Why do I want approval is a great question to ask. And sometimes you the answer is it's simple. You don't just want you're a junkie for it. Right. Like I, I like <laughs> I, at points in my life, I can't get enough. Yeah. Um, that is not my experience. Uh, that is not my experience now. I'm okay with getting approval from some quarters and not caring about it from others. But I, I think if, if one wants approval wantonly, there's, there's, a, there's an insecurity there, right? There's, there's not a sense of, let me back up. I think I'm, I can be pretty hard on myself. As I get older, I give myself more and more grace. But I don't want to stop wanting to give myself approval. So I guess I'm not as troubled by the why. For me, the evolution has been the from whom and for what. Ah, I think that's all baked into a bit of your story that I, I want to hit some highlights on, being being familiar with kind of the story that you've told under the 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 flag of approval junkie. And I'd love to have you explain to people, especially in the context of approval, the high school, is it a pageant? Oh, yes, it was a pageant. A pageant is ha- as a high school activity within the school, this high be- school pageant. Explain how this worked in your role in it, please. Mm-hmm. I believe you're talking about Miss Aphrodite. That's... Uh, mm-hmm, which I... Um, let's just start with the bragging. That's I, a Georgia twang in there, by the way, Oh, folks. yes, it is. I uh, Dunwoody, Georgia, right outside, right outside of Atlanta. Um, I was, and I guess still am, Miss Aphrodite 1989, John. Um, <laughs> and if you're wondering whether I still have the tiara, I do. Do you I wear do. the sash out for job interviews? I, do, I don't know where the sash is. Okay. But the tiara I have... And it is missing some stones, aren't we all? Um, this was a pageant. I'm certain it no longer exists at my high school, which is now apparently like a charter school where more important things happen than a beauty and talent pageant. But I always knew I wanted to be Miss Aphrodite. My older brothers went to this high school. I remember, I remember before I got into high school going to a Miss Aphrodite, you know, just to suss it out and make my strategy for how to win. 
and I knew when I entered in ninth grade, representative of the, the French club, you had to you had to find someone to sponsor you. I knew that they didn't let ninth graders win, but I was I had a long game. I knew I would try my best as a freshman and see where it took me. And so uh, freshman year, I, I wore a shiny blue unitard and I sang nothing from a chorus line, which is, of course, written for a character named Morales, who is Puerto Rican, <laughs> like me. Unlike I'm not, you. I'm not. I'm not Puerto Rican. I'm just white. I'm white. And um, I, got, I got first runner up. And um, and that that felt really good. And then I was in it every year until senior year, which is, you know, you're supposed to win when you're senior. And um, just to back up to sort of explain why this was important to me, I I was a kid who was in all the honors classes and I loved doing all the work and making the A's. And I I was a good kid and a, a really good student. And then I would leave school and I would go to downtown Atlanta and do professional children's theater. So while I had some friends at school and most of them were into drill team and cheerleading, I had my other life and I loved it doing musical theater. And so this was the one place at my school where I could, this was the one time a year where I could show everybody, this is who I really am with jazz hands, right? Like, you may know me as the girl who always does her homework and raises her hand, but this, this is who I am, which is why senior year, I ordered a rainbow sequin miniskirt from the Avon catalog, (laughs) and I had, my spiral perm was like extra crunchy and extra high, and I hired this pretty famous vocal coach in Atlanta, in the Atlanta, in the metro Atlanta area, named Valerie Kennedy. And Miss Valerie was known for turning anybody into Miss Anything, right? Like, you name a pageant, you were going to win if you had Valerie Kennedy behind you. And she gave me a Barbara Streisand song. And, and she taught me this thing called the pageant arm raise, which I'm doing it for you, but it's like, you yeah, know, you de- hold... Describe it for, for audio listeners, what, yeah, exactly so, what it is. So if you're right-handed, like I, um, you're going to hold the mic in your in your left hand. You're only I think you're only going to do this once because this is your this is like the it's a showstopper. It, it's it a, is. Yeah. It, it's is coup de gras. Is that what that is that the right yes. use of that phrase? The I death feel like blow. it is. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and so you're going to hold. This is on a note you want to sustain. In this case, the last note of my Barbara Streisand song called "Let's Hear It for Me." Um, and you're going <laughs> to. Subtle. Mic. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I was in it to win it. I was sure. about to leave this school, John. Yeah. Oh, and I also had Nine West stiletto, like patent leather stilettos on. That may not mean much to you, but any Gen X or woman listening. Yeah. There, and there's a big resonate. bowl of, of validation, of external validation waiting for you as your reward if you can nail this stuff. <laughs> I do have a bowl. Like, I'm going to dive in. A massive terrine of validation. (laughs) So you hold the mic in your left hand, and then you're going to turn sideways to the audience with your your mic hand downstage, close to the audience. And you're going to squat in your heels, um, which takes some balancing. And you're going to put your right hand. You've got a jazz hand. You're going to put your right arm straight down to 6 o'clock. And as you rise on your heels, slowly, your right hand is going to go from six o'clock to fucking high noon. So that at the end of the note, you're you're looking up. You're not looking at the audience. You're looking up 
Probably at the Lord Jesus Christ with your with your jazz hand. <laughs> Who wants you Splayed. to win? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jesus wants me to win. <laughs> wow. And so you... And you leave it on the field. You leave yeah, it on the field. Yeah, you came to play. And so it worked and, and you won. And where was this victory? And not to not to drag your victory into darker places immediately, but that's the kind <laughs> of show we going. are. Where was this in the arc of your eating disorder? Oh, um, at the zenith, unless you consider being anorexic bad, and then it was at the nadir. You know, I consider it, just, it bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, <laughs> that was yes. It was at it was at my lowest weight. Yeah, yeah. So it was this time. I was seventeen. I felt kind of invincible because I was finally as skinny as I ever wanted to be, with all the effort that took, and. I, I won this pageant. I was, you know, crushing it in all my AP classes. And then a week later, I got letters from all the Ivy League schools to which I'd applied rejecting me. And then it was prom. And my dad took me out to dinner on prom night because no one had asked me. And so it was, it was, but those things, the, the prom part didn't bother me. The, the rejections from colleges, that didn't make sense so much to a 17 year old mind that had been taught, like, show up, do the things you're supposed to do. Yeah. Like, I, I did everything. Yeah. yeah. I, I, like, what? I'm not, I'm not, this is, you know, I'm not being rewarded for, do, do you not see this tiara, Harvard? <laughs> <laughs> actually, I didn't apply to Harvard that round. But I actually, at that point, my eating disorder did not feel dark to me. It was, I wasn't so, I was like, 97 pounds. I wasn't so skinny that I was put in a facility. I was so skinny that people did double takes and like probably whispered to my parents, is she okay? But but John, I was always so good at checking the boxes that I wasn't going to do, if I was going to do an eating disorder, I was going to do it right. I was going to do it so that I had attention for being so, so thin, but I didn't have to be, I didn't have to be taken out of the game. This is what I think a lot of people don't understand about anorexia. And it's certainly something I've struggled to understand uh, when people talk about it is the sense of achievement that can go with it. The sense of um, Huge. control over what can feel like an out of control life. And I mean, obviously it's it's medically disastrous and it's it causes a lot of long-term harm, especially in your relationship to to food, which is the mm-hmm. thing people need to have anyway. Mm-hmm. But it can feel like you're finally in control of things. Is that how it was for you? Yes. And I, I do want to take responsibility. I, I should not sound glib about it because it is a very terrible thing. And now that I am an adult person with children, I would be horrified to, to watch my children struggle with something like that. And I have friends whose children have had to be hospitalized. And, and so what's interesting about what you say is that, yes, I felt very triumphant for a long time. And yet I wasn't, I didn't feel like my life was out of control. I can understand how people in what feels like chaotic situations might focus on that to control that por- portion of their life. But for me, it was, it was in some ways quite superficial. 
I wanted to be, I, I looked around and I saw these girls, especially two of my very best friends who were just those like long-legged horsey girls who like, like were just long, long limbs and long blonde hair and it all seemed effortless and I had to wear a bra when I was nine and you know, I got my period in a Stuckey's restroom on the way to Disney World when I was 11. And, and, and I realize now that many American girls, you know, start menstruation younger and younger. But for, for me, that felt aggressively young, shockingly young. I didn't want the body that I had at 11. I didn't want it. I didn't want and, – and I wasn't sexually abused and I didn't have inappropriate – you know, uh, well, I may have had inappropriate attention from people who thought I was older than I was, but I didn't register it. So I don't have this excuse of wanting to desexualize myself for any negative reason or living in a chaotic world. I was a child of the 80s. Our role models were super skinny. A lot of the girls around me seemed effortlessly thin. And I wanted to look like that. I mean, I remember moments, like I said, I was a, I was a, you know, kid actor and I would be around a lot of stage moms and, and girls who were super Southern. And when they weren't, weren't doing musicals, they were doing like the real pageants, like where you drive your kid around the country and tan them. And I remember (laughs) that my mom wasn't there. She wasn't a stage mother. So she dropped me off for some rehearsal and we all had to be measured for costumes. And I think I was like 12 and some other mother measured me with a tape measure. And she's like, wait, let me do that again. She measured me. She was like, huh, I didn't think you would be that big. And like those kind of, mm. those kind of little, I guess today we call them microaggressions. And she probably meant it as a compliment, right? She was yeah. probably like, you don't look like you're that many inches round. It, that's, I was about to say, that's my excuse. That's, that's my story. And I, like I said, it's, it's, it's not painful for me to tell. I wish my mom were alive because I would like to know if it, how it felt for her. I have so many questions to ask her now that I'm a parent. But I, I don't think I'll ever have a normal relationship with, with food or wake up every day and love my body. But I'm infinitely better. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing, too, is, like I said, you need to eat. I mean, if, if, if you have a problem with alcohol, you could conceivably cut out all alcohol from your life. You can't cut out all food. That's right. Does something like anorexia go away or does it just get managed more and more efficiently? For me, it's gone away because I, I never have times when I'm like, oh, I feel very stressed and I'm going to manage this by not eating. It, at this point in my life, it's the opposite. Um, if I'm stressed, I'm going to eat more chocolate or saltwater taffy or whatever it is. I'm, I'm sure that's some people's experience, but I feel so, I mean, I didn't have kids until I was 41. I had my son and I had my daughter at 43. And it was the first time in my life, I was like, in my adult life, where I was like, oh no, like, I, I've made it this far by not eating lunch. Now I'm going to have to eat in front of my children. I'm going to have to prepare them food, which I don't know how to do. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to show them what healthy eating looks like. And that has been a pain in the butt. Because <laughs> you had to learn. Yeah. It, it just wasn't like before I had kids, most people don't have kids for the first time in their 40s. Before I had kids, part of my whole, I didn't even think about it consciously, but part of my whole diet plan was like, 
well, I don't usually have an office job with the type of work I do, so I can sleep till nine. And then unless I have to do a shoot or unless I have something I have to do, I can go to the gym and my work day can begin at 11. And then maybe I'll eat something around four. And like that, and I wasn't even consciously doing that. That was just the way I floated through the world. And like my refrigerator was full of olives and fertility drugs. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> and, and some chocolate. And then the fertility drugs worked. Make an amazing salad off that. <laughs> Very expensive. <laughs> Is this salad covered by insurance? <laughs> but then you, boom, you have kids. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I got to show them what it looks like to be a conscious eater. So you win the pageant and congratulations. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you. I you don't know, hear that I, enough. You really, you really deserve it. I'm, I have tears in my eyes as I, as I vigorously clap for you. Thank you. <laughs> and, and you go into acting, you go into theater and you go into, to Hollywood and, oh. you know, you, you act in things. I'm curious about people who go into performing in terms of establishing good mental health about it, because there's so much oh. about it that is so messed up. And I wonder if it's a lot of messed up people getting into that profession or people mm. getting into that profession that then messes them up. Like, where's the chicken and egg in that situation with the work and with a kind of unhealthy need for approval? Well, I can speak for myself, which is I had nothing but happy, good feeling self-esteem. And I, I feel very conscious about how I'm going to express this because I really, really don't want it to sound self-aggrandizing. My life was a series of many what felt like successes. I not just Miss Aphrodite, um, but I, I ended up going to Harvard where I just, I absolutely loved it and was studying history and literature of modern France and England and loving all that and getting to do theater with people who are still my best friends and people who write, like I was just spent the whole past weekend with them, who, people who write Broadway musicals and are just amazing geniuses. And making and, out with Matt Damon also. And making out with Matt Damon. Come Thank you for on. not making me say that. I was waiting for you to point that out. Yeah. You know. um, right. So then I, I win a scholarship that it's it's much more difficult to win this scholarship than it is to even star in a sitcom in Hollywood, like numerically, right? Empirically. So I, I win this scholarship and I go to Oxford and I get this my This is the master's. Rhodes Scholarship. It's the Rhodes Scholarship. It's, I'm just like, even as I tell you, I can't believe how lucky I am. And I got it, by the way, John, in my second interview, they asked me, they were like, well, you're going to, I mean, I was unapologetic about, yes, I want this opportunity for higher education, and I'm an actor, and I'm going to continue to act. And so basically, they were like, okay, we'll act. And I had just finished doing, at college, I had just finished doing House of Blue Leaves, the John Guare play, and I played Bananas, and I hopped up on a chair, and I did this pretty famous monologue of, of Bananas, and I got the scholarship. And so then I go to Oxford, and I have this... I, I, absolutely magical experience. So what I'm trying to tell you is that to me, at that point, when I left England at 25, like, why wouldn't I then go on to Hollywood? Conquer Hollywood. Boom. 
Yeah. I, I have nothing but wins behind me. If that guy you made out with can do it, why can't you do it? <laughs> exactly. And he didn't even graduate from Harvard, technically. Coming up, Miss Aphrodite 1989, Rhodes Scholar, Matt Damon Maker-Outer, hits Hollywood. Talking with Faith Saley, author and playwright of Approval Junkie. She quietly struggled with anorexia as a teenager, but as for achievements, she was winning big. Rhodes scholarship behind her, she sets her movie star life career in motion, or tries to. So I get to LA, I'm 25. The next year, my mother dies. And I can only see this now, now that I'm a year and a half away from the age my mother was when she died, I can only see this now and realize I don't know how that girl, I'm going to call her a girl, though at 26 years old, one is not a girl. I was 26 when she died. I don't know how I took one step forward. I mean, I didn't have a partner. I didn't live, I was 3,000 miles away from my family. And my mother and I were unbelievably close. And, and, and LA sucks. It is so hard. Sorry, LA. It is so hard. It was, at least for me, so hard to find a sense of self and a sense of worth and happiness there. And this is the mid-90s, and everyone is, I'll just, I'll go back to the skinny thing. Like, everyone on TV was so skinny. There was not this amazing artistic community that we see on TV now. I feel like, I feel like we look for actors of all shapes and sizes, now more than ever. There was like this one standard of beauty. I was bereft. You know, my brothers already had their husbands and wives, and... I'm, I don't have my mother. And it was just dark. And so, yeah, it was a recipe for disaster because I would go to audition after audition and I would be nervous and I would try too hard because my thing, really, my best thing is theater. Like, get me on a stage and I just feel like I'm home. Which but is a different go, kind of acting than on camera kind of acting. acting. Right. It's an acting made for Miss Aphrodite. It's yeah. an acting made for jazz hands. Special wave. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so... Well, I did have some very cool, quote unquote, successes. Like I got beamed up on Star Trek and that was super cool. And I got that that role actually while my mom was dying. I wish she could have seen me do that. And I I finally, it, it's interesting, like the the big turn for me, and again, I only see this in retrospect, was when I was cast as one of six stars of this uh, fully improvised Bravo show. It People don't remember it. It was only on for two seasons. It was called Significant Others, and it came on before Queer Eye. And it was totally improvised. And when I look back, I see that that was the juvenilia, if you will, of how I needed to take a turn in my life and career and start scripting myself. How my trying to show up to be chosen to be someone else and speak other people's words wasn't quite working. Hmm. And, and then what was the span between that and 
meeting and marrying your first husband. My husband, as your husband, as, as he is yeah. now referred to. I met him the month I moved to LA, and he thought I was snobby, and I thought he was arrogant, and we were both a hundred percent right. And then <laughs> I didn't see him again for three years. And in the interim, we had a mutual friend who told me that he, my husband, had cancer twice. And I heard, you know, I didn't know him, but I wished him the best, you know, notionally. And then I saw him three years later, and he was humbled by his experience. I was humbled by losing my mother and not knowing, I didn't know where home was. I, I didn't know where home was for so long. And by home, I mean, like, who loves me? Where am I supposed to be? Where's my mom? You were unmoored. I was absolutely unmoored and, and not getting approbation, which had fueled me forever, both incessant approbation from my parents and then the empirical approbation of grades. And then after grades, here's a scholarship. Like, check this box, check this box, right? And, and, I, and he, you know, his hair was just growing back from, from the chemotherapy. And I, I really think that we thought we were finding things in each other at that time. I think we were finding hope in each other in ways that neither of us could ever deliver. I, I, I see now that I wanted him to love me unconditionally like my mother did. And that's just not It's not a not good possible. recipe right there. No, no. And, and I, again, though, approval junkie, I, he put me on a pedestal so high and so fast. I remember when we first started dating, he would just say, I'm just swabbing the decks on Faith Saley's yacht. Like, that was his phrase. <laughs> and, and to feel like I would, and he was, you know, gregarious and handsome and, and he loved me. Uh, and, and I had been missing, I needed an influx of love, right? I'm not getting it from this career I've chosen, and I'm not getting it from my mother. And, um, and so I invested so hard in that relationship that, it, that even though it stopped feeling good very soon after we started the relationship, I couldn't, I couldn't uninvest. I, I was going to make, I, I, after, after years, and these are the years when it feels like everybody's getting married, right? You know, your early 30s, everybody's taking off on their lives except me. I was like, I have put in the work. We are going to get married. This is going to happen. Even though there, you, you write in the book about it, even as you were saying yes to a marriage proposal, you didn't want to look directly into the camera for the picture being taken no. of that because of the dead eyes that you would have thinking about the prospects of being married to this person. Yeah, the, the fact that it didn't, I mean, I still had hopes. I thought it might be amazing, but all along, I mean, I would say to people before the wedding, well, I mean, it's 50-50, right? That's everybody. You're either going to stay married or you're not. <laughs> uh, like, that was my defense mechanism. I mean, it was both true. I really didn't know if, it, if we would stay married. But it was it was also like, I'm going to I'm going to be kind of cool and detached about this, because by the time he proposed, I was so hurt by the fact that it had taken so long and all the unkindness we had experienced before the proposal. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff, you know, you you've written the book Approval Junkie and you've it's been a show. It's an Audible original. 
it's got a lot of wisdom of perspective in it that, that you've learned. And, you know, I can listen to this and say, oh, she was looking for someone else to fill in the parts of herself that she didn't know she needed to fill in for herself. She wanted somebody else to complete her when there was a lot of things that were damaged that she, you know, necessarily needs to to fix in herself. She latches onto somebody else and tries to make it work, even though it's doomed. Were any of those thoughts going through your head back then of like, I can become a star again if somebody will will make hmm. me a star. You know, in this world where there are no pageants, where my mom's gone, where there's only fickle casting agents in, in who Hollywood. Who tell me to get bangs. Who sure you read that story. <laughs> there's a lot of bangs in the book. Yeah. Let's be clear with anyone who's listening to this. I have an incredibly high forehead. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, astonishingly high. Yet you persevere. You're so brave. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but were, were there any of those thoughts back then of like, oh, I'm seeking approval from the wrong sources. This should be coming from me. Or did you think I'm living my best life? I'm making the proper decision here. No, it's a former. I knew there was always, even though we use the word unmoored, I had been loved so much and so hard my whole life by my parents and my brothers that I always knew I was worth something. And all of my fetish for achievement my whole life, it came from myself. I did not, I had the opposite of helicopter. I had parents who were strict, but they did not ever push me. In fact, there were times they were like, why do you work so hard? Um, <laughs> you don't need to be in the pageant if you don't want to. <laughs> right, or, or take all these courses or apply there or whatever it is. So I, I think that's what saved me is that I, I, there was a part of me that always knew that I was loved and I deserved to be loved. The problem was that I wanted to be loved by this person who was mostly my boyfriend that, for that time and then for part of the time, my husband. I wanted to be loved in, in a certain way by him that he was not going to deliver and I wanted to be loved as an actor. I, 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 wanted, I wanted to be a famous sitcom star. And it just, it, it's, I look back with such clarity, right? And perspicacity. And it's crazy how long it took me to, to get out of that situation. And, and, you know, my husband and I, my husband was married before as well. And we, we met when we were 39, got married when we were 40. This is your current husband, your second husband. My current husband. I believe he will stay my current husband. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah. Right. I think. Um, I'd like it to be. But, you know, we often say to our children something that I don't remember anybody ever saying to me, which is if someone, and these, our kids are little, right? They're in second and fourth grade. If someone doesn't make you feel good, they're not your friend. If someone doesn't make you feel good over and over, they, that's not what love is. And that's such, because they're not in, you know, romantic love right now, but they have people who don't treat them so well at school. And I'll say to my daughter, well, honey, then maybe let's, maybe let's give so-and-so a wide berth 
because maybe she's not your friend, but mommy, she's my friend. And, and I'm like, I appreciate how, you know, generous you are, but, but maybe not. And, and my husband had, you know, his own journey towards a second marriage and his own lessons. But, but we both say that. And I think it's, I didn't feel good. I didn't, I was not made to feel loved by my husband. And I'm sure he has his own story and probably he didn't feel like I loved him enough. Um, but I also wasn't made to feel loved by the city of Los Angeles. And, and the, and the career, I threw myself into a place and situation that didn't love me back. Yeah. And all of those things were happening at once. I mean, I look back at my time in LA, which is just like a dark hole, even though I lived there for 11 years. And it is impossible to extricate all the elements, right? But I wonder, had I been in a healthy relationship and marriage, would I, would it not have been so dark? If I had a successful sitcom career, would it not have been so dark? If my mother were alive, there's just, there's just no way. Just ahead, one can go through some bumps in life and accumulate hard-won wisdom. But what do you do with that wisdom? How do you apply it? Hal Laplin here with breaking news on a revolutionary form of entertainment, professional wrestling. For more, we go to our correspondent, Danielle Radford. Professional wrestling is the craze that's sweeping the nation, featuring fisticuffs and colorful costumes. But who can help us make sense of this world of body slams? Lindsay Kelk has the answer. Sources tell us of an amazing podcast called Tights and Fights, filled with discussions of the absurdity of professional wrestling, plus all the sincerity and hilarity that you could shake a stick at. Listen to the Tights and Fights podcast every week. Find it on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. And your old-timey radio. Hey there, I'm Ellen Weatherford. And I'm Christian Weatherford. And we've got big feelings about animals that we just gotta share. On Just the Zoo of Us, your new favorite animal review podcast, we're here to critically evaluate how each animal excels and how it doesn't, rating them out of 10 on their effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Guest experts give you their takes informed by actual, real-life experiences studying and working with very cool animals like sharks, cheetahs, and sea turtles. It's a field trip to the zoo for your ears. So if you or your kids have ever wondered if a pigeon can count, why sloths move so slow, or how a spider sees the world, find out with us every Wednesday on Just the Zoo of Us in its natural habitat on MaximumFun.org. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Back with Faith Saley, author of Approval Junkie. As I've said, I love that title, but I haven't been pulling that title along through my life like Faith has. She's a little more ambivalent about it. I came up with this phrase and attached it to a bunch of essays I wanted to sell as a book nine years ago. So, so let's call it a decade. And a lot has happened in that decade. And so I, I would not... I would not reject the the title Approval Junkie. I th- I think it's catchy and provocative. And I still look, John, do you believe anybody who's like 
I'm a zero fucks person. Do you, do you no, ever believe of course anybody? Not. Because why are they saying that in yes. the first place? <laughs> right. If you give yeah. zero fucks, you don't even have to articulate it. Right? right, right. You don't even come to the fuck giving meeting. And I will, I don't even attend Fucks Anonymous. I will, I'm, I'm, I go as Faith and everyone can know it. But I, what happens, and I wonder if this has happened for you as, as certainly as I age and know who I am more and what I have to offer. And, and also, I mean, I'm 51 years old. I can't even be I'm bad at almost everything, right? You you get you get to a point where you're like these are the 5 or 10 things I crush. Like I can al- I like almost every time. Everything else I'm really I'm really quite bad at or not interested in. And and so I have a sense of self-awareness about the things I am not going to try to win approval for. Like grammar. Like, like ending a sentence in a preposition. Um, and yet I cling to the things that I love doing and I think I'm really good at. And I have also, and, and maybe this is part of becoming a parent because you look at your kids and you're like, wow, they're really quite baked. Like their, their DNA arranges itself in a way that it doesn't for me, no matter how much nurturing I give them. And so I'm more and more at peace with the fact that I was just created to try really hard. I was <laughs> created to want to express. Like whatever the dopamine receptors are or whatever, for me, they really, really fire when somebody laughs and or applauds. And I, I think I give myself a little grace that do, that doesn't make me needy or broken. It's just, it's just who, it's just what like gets me going. It's it, there's a bit of a distinction in there because some people might be really motivated to strive and just, you know, go all out in pursuit of a goal because they really, really want that thing that they're trying to achieve, that position, that object, that relationship, whatever it is. And then other people are just naturally super striving all the time, you know, as a condition. And it's it's almost not even related to the pursuit of the goal, it's the, it's an end result in itself. It sounds like you're more in that second group. Uh, yeah. Although I don't think I strive at absolutely everything, but yes. So yes, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna go for a run, I want to push myself, right? I don't want it to be like, oh, well, this will be an easy day. If I'm gonna bake a cake, I want it to be really, really good and look really good. But I'm not like, I'm not the person who has to leave the house in full makeup or, I feel like if I'm going to try something, I'm going to try my best. Is that what you mean? Like a yeah. little bit of jazz hands added whenever yeah. possible. But it's not a building strategy towards becoming president of the United States. You know, it's 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 uh, just a, a way that you approach all things, it sounds like, or a lot of things. A lot of things. And it's and again, I mentioned I mentioned parenting and I've been meaning to ask you this because I think that becoming a parent, which happened to me in my 40s, is just is such a seismic shift in terms of my mental health and how I approach it and how I think about it and model it. And I, and I haven't listened to every episode of Depression Mode, but in so many, I don't hear a lot of people talking about parenting. And that may be because they're not parents, or it may be because people d- don't think it intersects with their 
mental health like it does for me. Mm. I think sometimes they want to leave the kids out of it. They get really conscious of, of putting the kid, even their relationship to the kids as a parent, from putting that into the conversation. Which is fair. I can see wanting to protect your children's privacy. But, yeah. but when I think about, I'm so much more aware of my own mental health and what I'm modeling now that I have two young people watching me. Mm. And for, for me, the way that intersects with approval is, number one, I'm very conscious of how and in what way I voice my approval towards my kids. Because I don't want to raise... I don't want to raise approval junkies, I guess. <laughs> although, although I do want them. I mean, I look at my kids and they like, they're only eight and 10, but I don't like, I had the eye of the tiger. I always had the <laughs> eye of the tiger and, and they don't have that yet for whatever they're doing. What did you do as a parent? Did you, did you just watch and hope your children's passions unfold? I mean, I, I've been aware of the philosophy to not say like, you know, oh, you you drew a, a house. That is such a good drawing of a house. There's this idea that you're not supposed to say that. You're supposed you, to you say... You praise effort, not achievement. Yeah. Or you say, oh, I see a door there and I see some windows. And, and you worked you, hard on that. Yeah, you worked hard on that. You know, I, I sometimes do that and sometimes I, I slip and just say, oh, that's an amazing monster you just drew. I really love that. <laughs> We like to talk about kind of what the process was when they do something like, like, oh, okay, you, you know, my, my daughter read a poem at a school event last week and, and it's, you know, we don't want to say, well, that was the best poem of all the poems that everybody read. Um, but you but, thought it was, right? Well, I mean, a little biased, but, but I would say, you know, you really seem to, to enjoy yourself up there. You really seemed confident in what you were doing. It seems, it seems like a lot of people were really listening to you and you know, mm. what, how do you think it went? Like, how, how do you feel after having prepared for that and then done that? And so we try to kind of, you know, do this, uh, recognize what you're feeling, recognize what your mind is doing and try not to judge it as, as good or bad, but just sort of notice it and, and build from there. That's, I will always remember what you just said. Oh, that good. is, no, that is such, that is that, because essentially you're like, how did what you just did make you feel? I am now in a, I am now finally, or I'd say really over the past decade, in a time of my life where I, the approval I want is my own, and I know when something feels good. I don't need to turn to somebody. I don't mind if somebody's like, oh my God, that was amazing. I don't, but I don't need to turn to somebody and say, how was that essay I wrote? How was that joke I just made? How was that interview I just did? Because I have become my own North Star. Do you, do you kind of do a postmortem after a joke or a story oh on God, Sunday morning? Yes. And do Okay, it's well, that's awful. Wait, yeah. wait, I don't do a postmortem with, with Sunday morning. I've seen the edit so many times. I've been involved in tracking and retracking. Well, I do have, have you ever heard the French phrase, l'esprit de, uh, de l'escalier? You know yes, that? the thing yeah. that you wish you had said in the moment that you think of later on. Yes, you're walking down the stairs and you're like, oh, that's what yes. I should have said. <laughs> that 
that tortures me after every wait, wait. I, I, I actually have to tell myself, stop making the joke now that you didn't make last night. <laughs> but I, I'm better and better at shutting things down once they're done. And I also think that comes so so much of this for me at least comes with age, which is that I I know I'll get to do it again. Sometimes I don't know what form it will take, but I know I'll get to write something else. I know I'll get to perform something else. I know I'll get to tell another joke. Mm. Andy Richter told me that especially those early days with Conan O'Brien, they would do a show and Conan would be beating himself up over something that didn't go over big in the show. And Andy would say, isn't it a shame that we never get to do another show again, that that's the last one we'll ever do? Oh, wait a minute. We have another one tomorrow. Exactly. Exactly. And I try to teach that. So my, my son just started playing baseball and he gets so worked up if he, if he doesn't get a hit. And I, and I just, I mean, it wasn't so very long ago that for me, the stakes felt high with absolutely everything. I'm talking within the past 10 years, the stakes have felt so high. And I'm trying to let my kids know, like, don't believe the people who say there are no second chances. There's people forget, you're not so important. I'm not saying this to my kids. I'm saying this to myself. You're not so important that people remember everything you did and didn't do or how you messed that up. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm interested then in this idea of the evaluation that happens, the, you know, the, the wit of the staircase, because I can't speak French words. Um, is there an evaluative process after the things you do, you know, at least on a, on a subconscious instinctive level to see if it measured up to something? I'm better and better at recognizing it and shutting it down and being, and, and saying to myself, you're doing that. And you did the best you could in the moment. Semicolon. However, yeah. But when I'm comparing, I'm just hard on myself. Again, that's just like the way I was built. I'm com- what I'm comparing myself to is not somebody else. It's, it's how good I wanted to be. Mm. So you talk about this progress that you've made, or at least this evolution that you've had. Yeah, are um, you skeptical? Well... <laughs> I'm I'm wondering about how deliberate it was. If it was just like mm. if someone is 25 years old and listening to this and kind of has these beating themselves up kind of habits, can they say, okay, you know, by 50, I'll grow out of these, <laughs> you know, or was it like, again, like trying to get to a goal, like a process of disciplining yourself to try to get to a better place or an easier place? I, I can't give myself the credit that it's been a deliberate process. It's It's been kind of... At the end of my play, Approval Junkie, I'm, I'm talking to my daughter, Minerva, who when I first did the play, she was four. When I just did the play, she was seven. But I'm really talking to the audience. And at the end, one of the things I say is... I can't remember the exact line. It was something about I... Seeking approval hasn't undone me. It's done me. It's dinged me. It's built me. And I feel, I feel dinged up, but not in a bad way. I, I, I feel calloused and, and, and dinged up and that the accumulation of caring so much over and over and then seeing on what occasions it was worthwhile to care and on what occasions it didn't matter to care so much has been this slow, not conscious process of evolution. 
I will say that my husband, I'm just lucky that the second time I chose a husband, I, I chose someone from whom there are no approval or disapproval vibes. And, and one of the first most meaningful things that happened when we were, when we were dating, he took me to, we were in Prague for my, for a trip for my 40th birthday, we were dating. And I had done this commentary on CBS Sunday morning. It was the first year I was on it. And I thought I'd be provocative. And for the pets show, I thought I'd do a commentary called I am not a pet person. <laughs> now I remember this. You do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let me just be clear to anyone who's listening. I love animals. I just didn't think I was a pet person. It's hard to have a pet, a dog in an apartment in New York City. And I mean, but people painted me as Cruella DeVille. And it was early on in my Sunday morning career. And I thought it would be a good use of my time to read the hundreds of hateful <laughs> comments that were coming my way. And I mean, comments that were like people telling me I've never been unconditionally loved. And someone yeah. said I should go off on the space station. Someone was like, I got to send you a carton of cigarettes. Just keep smoking on them. I mean, these are Jesus. these people, people and pets, man. Yeah. And yeah. And, and my husband, no, he was my boyfriend, found me in the lobby of this former monastery turned hotel, like sucking up Eastern Europe, Europe's Wi-Fi. And, and he's like, come outside. And he, and he takes me outside to look at the stars and, and reminds me that we are literally half a world away from everything that doesn't matter. And he says to me, the loudest boos come from the cheapest seats. And I love, have you ever heard that before? No, that's it's a good one. the best. I think about it all the time. And so I feel like I went w with, with his helpfulness, which is that he just doesn't, approve or disapprove of me I my dynamic with in my first marriage was always trying to win approval and sometimes I got it in little in little delicious nuggets it's like you know it's like the 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 mouse in the experiment trying to get more more treats and I don't have that dynamic with my husband this is a revelatory thing for a lot of people who have been in Difficult families, uh, especially as kids, but it can happen. I would, I would think, in difficult marriages as well. This idea that your personhood is conditional, that you have to achieve a certain thing, you have to earn your rights. When in fact, rights are rights. You know, you have a right to be respected. You have a right to be loved. You have a right to vote and have health care. And what toxic families, especially, can do is they can say, okay, you've, you've got to prove this. You've got to earn these things. And that's it's such a distortion. And it makes someone sometimes unable to relax for the rest of their lives. And I'm glad you turned that around. I am so grateful that that was not what I grew up with. And yet I found myself in this marriage where uh, he, he would literally say to me, if you acted like this all the time, I would want to be with you more. If you behave like you behave today, I would want to have sex with you. And I have to tell you, John, I, I recently came across an old diary that I didn't even know I still had a journal. And it was from, our, from my first honeymoon. And I, I, almost, I didn't really want to look at it. 
but I was like, I'll just, I'll just take a peek. It was like it happened to somebody else. It felt so far away that I couldn't believe I had been that person. And I wanted to hop in a time machine. And I wanted to go back and hug her and tell her not just, oh, you're going to find love. You're going to find a home. You're going to become a mother. You're going to have an amazing career that you want. All, All those cool questions that were answered. I wanted to tell her what you just said. I wanted to, and and I'm saying her, like, right? I'm not even saying me. <laughs> I wanted to hug that 34-year-old woman and tell her, you deserve to be loved. You, 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 you deserve to be accepted for who you are. You deserve to be able to get mad. You deserve to be able to be sad. Earlier, you said you, you got lucky in finding your second husband. What if it's not luck? What if it's accumulated wisdom? It, it, thanks. I'll take that. It is. Okay. <laughs> it is. It is. It is because I, had I met him 10 years earlier, I don't think I would have fallen in love with him or appreciated so deeply what he has. And, and he uses this word. He knows me so well. He doesn't, he, I mean, he knows the whole approval thing. And the, the, yeah, I mean, look, he knows the, the title attached to me when I do my one-woman show. <laughs> right. But he uses this word that is so much deeper and so perspicacious and loving, which is, he said, he said honey, you want to be witnessed. It, I, I try to witness you every way I can. I, and, and he means, you know, he shows up for the performances and, and such. But he means, like, he notices how hard I try to be the best parent I can be. He, he doesn't mean an it. audience. It's not an audience. Yes. It's a witness. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. That's right. And and that that's where I feel like I can move into grace with myself as this approval junkie, whatever it means now, is like, I like to be witnessed. It means I feel like... You know, I have a performative gene. I want to express myself in the world. The older I get, the more I feel like I'm specific about the things that are worth expressing. And I and I am more purposeful about the work that I do. Like, I wouldn't do, uh, and I, I'm not a pets person commentary now. Like, what good does it do? What, do, what does it bring into the world, right? right. I wanted attention, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, uh, ten, whatever, 10 12 years ago, when they asked me to go on Fox News, I did. I was like an idiot. I was like, oh, yeah, I'll show up and be the funny liberal girl on Bill O'Reilly. I would never do. I don't need attention. I do want to be witness for the things I have to offer. And so I think that's where I will I will take the approval from people who matter to me, that list whose approval matters. And that list is very small. And I will be grateful for being witnessed. We were corresponding before this interview, and and you talked about some lessons you've learned on the other side of your journey. There was pain in your journey, and you've learned some lessons, I'm assuming the hard way, along that journey. Is that what you were referring to, those experiences with with your first husband? Yeah, it's, it's, don't, don't ever try to seek love or approval from people, from audiences, from, from folks who will never give it to you or will meet it out 
in such small quantities that it is abusive. And that's also part of like extricating myself from, I mean, I'll tell you, John, on the list of 10 things that I do well, I'm a really good actor. And, you know, I had some success when I was acting in Hollywood, but the process of being an actor and auditioning didn't feel good. It felt awful. Just like my marriage felt awful. And, And again, with hindsight, I can see that when I extricated myself which was not easy because, because the, the little hits of approval I got were like, it's like a drug. It's like a drug. And I, and I do think it was some kind of, I don't know what it's called, approvalitis, some kind of mental situation where I only felt good about myself if I was getting this external validation. I, I think once you extricate from those situations that don't make you feel good, and for me that even includes scrolling through social media, that that's how you get to the other side of it. Yeah. It's interesting what you said about trying to get love from someone who just cannot give it to you. And I, I thought of the, uh, the, the hardware store analogy. I don't know if you know about this one, but Mm-mm. if you need milk, don't go to the hardware store. The hardware store can never sell you milk. It can, you can never leave the hardware store with milk the hardware store doesn't carry milk and the you know the, some people just can't give you the things that you want and so you go there looking for those things asking for milk and they're just and then, never... and then you go you keep going you're yeah. like but today the hardware store might have milk right right and i've kept this in mind for you know some people in my life but then there's a big hardware store in the Twin Cities called Menards, and my wife went there a couple weeks ago and came home with some fucking milk. And I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> now I have to re-enter all these toxic relationships. Serious? Yes! She oh, came home with milk, and I think it might have been just because she had heard me make this analogy a bunch of times and wanted to mess with me because we've been, like... married, we've been married 27 years. I think you, you earn... The ability to mess with people at that point. She just ripped that (laughs) metaphor away from you. That's like somebody who's like, you know what? I'm going to take a frog and I'm going to turn up the boiling water really slowly and watch. It's going to jump out. It is. Watch. (laughs) And you've proven your point and really dismayed a frog in the process. I had, when I was going through the worst part of my divorce, I had a therapist who said to me, you married a scorpion. And mm. I can teach you how to be a scorpion trainer. Like I can help if you, because if, I was like, but I want to make this work. I want to stay married. And she was like, okay, do you want to stay married or do you ever want to be happy? Right. And she said, I can teach you how to be a scorpion trainer. Like, like you can make this work, air quotes. And it's like trying to get the milk, right? A, a, a scorpion is, a scorpion stings. A scorpion stings. Yep. And that's It'll what drown was you so... both crossing the river because it's a scorpion, and that's what it right. does. Right, right. Um, wow, we are really off and running with all these no, right? metaphors and, and parables. <laughs> yeah, the illustrations for this thing are going to be amazing. <laughs> that's Faith Saley. An Audible original of Approval Junkie is now available on Audible. You could look Faith up at faithsaley.com or, you know, just Google her. 
And let's uh, let's gather our wits, gather our thoughts, gather our breath a little bit. Laura House is here for a meditation moment. Hi, Laura. Hello. Oh, I think I'm going to need this today. Really? Yeah. <laughs> You've been storing it up. I've been storing. I've got some. I've got some. Uh, some lack of centeredness. I think, if that's a word. Yeah. No, it is. It's uncenteredness. Uncenteredness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. No, that's good because it's uh, sometimes you can meditate to be honest, like a little deeper when it's kind of built up a little because it's just yeah. such a relief. Like there's such contrast. So let's do it. Let's do it. Here's how we do it. You don't need any special equipment. You just want to relax, sit comfortably wherever you are, close your eyes. So this is a not driving experience. And just notice your breath. That's sort of step one, get comfortable. Step two, just notice that you are breathing. You'll also notice that you're having thoughts and there's nothing wrong with that. Totally normal. It's part of it. Thoughts are part of this meditation. And it's really about where you put your attention. So notice your thoughts. And then go back to noticing your breath. And as you meditate, your mind will wander into your thoughts. And when you're aware of that, just notice your breath again. And just let go. You can go ahead and open your eyes slowly. <sighs> Was that useful? You know, for we both traffic in sound as part of our jobs, but it's nice to have not sound for a little while. Yeah, it is. It is a nice respite. I My little bulldog was trying to get into my room. And uh-huh. so uh, <laughs> that's kind of a fun thing with meditation. Like there is going to be sound, like the truck is going to back up or your trash is getting picked up and you, even that's just a thought of like, yeah. oh, that thing is happening. Oh, just go back to your breath. My uh, black lab mix mutt mm-hmm. down, down here was quite contented on the floor. So I, I think I've got to look to her for guidance. Oh, so nice. Laura House, thanks. Thank you. Next time on Depression Mode, sometimes you have a diagnosed anxiety disorder, but sometimes you don't, and you're just being a jerk. My wife asked me, she was pouring the cream in my coffee, and she said, you know, say when. I said, wait, did you put, you have to put a layer of ice cubes in, and then you put the cream on top of that. That's the only way I know exactly how much cream. And there was a moment where I was like, gosh, this darn anxiety has gotten me again. It's like, no, you're just a creep. Like, there's some things (laughs) you're just a creep about. From my brother, my brother, and me, Justin McElroy joins us. If people support our show, we have a show. If people stop supporting the show, the show goes away. I don't want the show to go away. If you are already donating, thank you so much. You are getting these stories out into the world. If you haven't yet, it's easy to do. Go to MaximumFun.org slash join. Find a level that works for you and become part of it. Uh, 
Be sure to hit subscribe on the podcast and write reviews. Give us five stars. All that stuff helps get our show out into the world where we think it can help people. I want you to know that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 for free at 1-800-273-8255. That's 800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available. Text HOME to 741-741. Our electric mail address is depressionmode at MaximumFun.org. We'd love to hear from you. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. There's a lot going on over there. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DepressPod. Our newsletter, Depression Mode newsletter, is on Substack. I write that twice a week. Check that out. Search that up on Substack. I'm on Twitter at John Moe. Hi, credits listeners. I auditioned for the 1995 Sylvester Stallone movie Assassins. Antonio Banderas is in it, too. I auditioned for the part of a bellhop that gets punched in the face. I didn't get the part. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. We get help with booking from Mara Davis. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings I'm Cleo. I live in Brisbane. I just wanted to say that you achieved something today. You survived. Keep going. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.